Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Yesterday, nurses across the state held rallies to demand safe staffing levels and stronger workplace protections. In downtown LA, KPCC senior health reporter Jackie Fortier spoke with members of the California Nurses Association at Good Samaritan Hospital. About 40 nurses stood in front of the hospital wearing red union face masks and waving plastic clappers, hoping to call attention to what they say are unsafe working conditions. My name is Alex Cuevas. I am the chief nurse union representative for the hospital here at Good Samaritan. Cuevas says nurses are assigned too many patients to care for at once. In the past four months, he says about 80 nurses at Good Samaritan have quit. He teared up as he described the strain. I had a cath lab nurse crying, literally in tears, to say, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm not a strong person like you guys are. And she ended up leaving. They're draining us so much. There's literally no empathy whatsoever from this management. The staffing crunch is exacerbated by nurses testing positive with COVID, but Cuevas says the hospital should have planned for another surge with more hiring. The short-term future is bleak. California is expected to surpass last winter's hospital surge peak of 53,000 patients in the coming week. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. As the Omicron variant continues to surge through the country, here is one morsel of welcome news. New data based on Southern California patients show they're not getting as sick as those infected by the Delta strain. KCRW's Tara Atrian has the details. The research is based on medical records from tens of thousands of Kaiser Permanente patients in Southern California. The results are preliminary, but CDC Director Rochelle Walensky says they indicate that people infected with Omicron are substantially less likely to face severe outcomes compared with those who get sick from the Delta variant. No patients with Omicron required mechanical ventilation. Additionally, this study found that those infected with Omicron who were hospitalized had a shorter duration of hospital stay compared to those with Delta. It's the latest study to suggest that Omicron is milder than Delta. However, since the variant is more transmissible, healthcare providers across the Southland are still getting crushed by the sheer number of cases. Many local hospitals are at a breaking point with staffing shortages, and some, like Kaiser Permanente Southern California, are temporarily postponing some elective surgeries to deal with the flood of patients. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. Worker advocates are calling on Governor Newsom and the state legislature to again require employers to provide two weeks of COVID-19 paid sick leave. The last round expired in September. KQD's Farida Jabal Romero reports. 
California has a permanent paid sick leave law, but it provides just three days per year. With coronavirus cases mounting, that's not enough, say nurses, teachers, and other frontline workers who've had to miss work, often without getting paid. So colleagues are showing up to work after testing positive for COVID-19, says Rhiannon Ramos, a grocery store worker in San Bernardino County. You know, we used to be heroes for the state. You know, there were cartoons of us with capes on our backs, and now we're forced to choose between our bills being paid and the state of public health. San Jose State Senator Dave Cortesi chairs the Senate's Labor Committee. He says supplemental paid sick leave is an essential tool to fight the spread of COVID-19. You know, if we're going to tell them not to move around and not to work, again, we need to pay them. Uh, with these big spikes in case rates, obviously, we need to take action now. The California Chamber of Commerce says they're not opposed, but they're concerned about the cost for employers, especially small ones. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. More than 200 inmates will be released early from two jail facilities in Sacramento County following COVID-19 outbreaks. The Sacramento Bee reports the process began yesterday afternoon and should be completed over the weekend. The Sacramento County Sheriff's Office says it will use the same criteria as last year, releasing those who have 90 days or less on their jail sentence. The sheriff's office says the move was made to provide adequate space to quarantine those who have either tested positive or are at greater risk of contracting COVID. Health officials say there have been more than 120 confirmed COVID-19 cases among inmates in the main jail in downtown Sacramento and in Rio Consumnes Correctional Center near Elk Grove. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Starting this week, some people with weakened immune systems are eligible for a fourth dose of the coronavirus vaccine. This comes after the CDC changed its guidance for people who are immunocompromised, allowing them to get a fourth shot five months after their third dose of the vaccine. 
There are an estimated 7 million people in the U.S. who are immunocompromised, many of whom don't produce the necessary antibodies to respond to an infection. That leaves them more susceptible to a virus like COVID-19. But it's still unclear how effective the vaccines and boosters are for this group of people and whether other treatments might be more effective in fighting off possible infection. I spoke earlier with Dr. Lindsay Ryan, an internist at UC San Francisco, who herself is immunocompromised. I started by asking her about the challenges that the immunocompromised have faced during the pandemic. I've heard from a lot of immunocompromised people around the country over recent months plus, and there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of a sense of abandonment and being forgotten. There's a lot of sense that they haven't been given the information they need to take proper care of their health or the tools to do that, and that they don't really know where to look. So what specifically are the shortcomings that you see when it comes to the information that the immunocompromised are or are not receiving? I think Individually, people need to know what their risk is in terms of how sick they might get from COVID. You know, and obviously you can't predict that exactly. But as I said, the risk of someone who, for instance, just got a kidney transplant two months ago is different from someone who's on a very low dose of an immunosuppressant that's not particularly high risk. They need to know that. They need to have good information about vaccination and, and boosters when they should get those, why they should get those. And for people who might have a very poor response to vaccination, they need to have information about other options, which right now include potential monoclonal antibody therapy. And just to be clear, we're talking about laboratory-produced molecules that could substitute or mimic antibodies that are found in the body. Exactly. So monoclonal antibodies, they're artificially produced in a lab, And they basically bind to the spike protein on the coronavirus to inactivate the virus. And they do, you know, what the antibodies produced by one's own immune system would do, except some people can't produce adequate antibodies. Right now, there's a preventative monoclonal antibody combination called Evasheld that's available for people who did not respond adequately to the coronavirus vaccination series because of immunocompromise. As I said before, there's around an estimated 7 million immunocompromised people in the country of whom many would benefit from Evasheld. The government initially purchased around 700,000 doses, actually just committed to another 500,000 doses, which, you know, still is likely to be far from enough. And the emails that I get in my inbox now are from people who are distraught that they're literally being put into lotteries with other patients at their cancer centers, pitting them against each other um, in hopes that they'll be the lucky one who gets the next dose of the monoclonal antibody. And I think this is an example of the fact that the lives of immunocompromised people during the pandemic have not been put on equal footing with the lives of non-immunocompromised individuals. And there needs to be a serious look at the equity issues surrounding this. What more should be done to address the particular concerns of the immunocompromised population? So I think right now we're at a point where it's becoming clear that coronavirus will become an endemic virus and that we're all going to have to adjust as individuals and a nation as to what this is going to mean for our lives, our work. And 
In thinking about what that involves on a policy level nationally and locally, it needs to involve considering what the lives of immunocompromised people are going to look like, and also including their voices in that conversation. And for the people for whom the vaccines are not enough, they should be given the full tools to protect themselves too, equitably with other Americans, and that means good access to preventive monoclonal antibodies. And those have been an extraordinarily short supply. All right. That is Dr. Lindsay Ryan. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us on the California Report. Thank you so much for having me. Another chapter in a saga that spanned more than 50 years. Governor Gavin Newsom will not allow Robert Kennedy's killer to be freed from prison, announcing Thursday that he has reversed a decision made by the state's parole board last summer. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos reports. 77-year-old Sirhan Sirhan shot and killed Robert Kennedy in 1968 in Los Angeles after Kennedy won the California presidential primary. After more than 50 years in prison, the State Board of Parole Hearings in August recommended Sirhan's release. But Newsom, who calls Kennedy his political hero, says Sirhan would still pose a threat to the public if he were released. Calling the assassination one of the most notorious crimes in American history, Newsom wrote in his decision that Sirhan has still not taken responsibility for his actions at the Ambassador Hotel, which injured five other people. Two of Kennedy's surviving sons have spoken in favor of his release, though Kennedy's widow and a number of his other children remain opposed. For the California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. And now to a preview of our sister show, The California Report's Weekly Magazine. This weekend is the Jewish holiday to Bishvat, a time to gather around food and honor trees and the harvest. In February 2020, for her series, California Foodways, reporter Lisa Morehouse joined a Tubishvat celebration of the Motherlode Jewish community in Tuolumne County. No one knew then that the COVID pandemic would soon stop in-person gatherings and create some tensions so many people are still navigating. Rabbi Andre Greenwald leads a Seder that includes eating fruits and nuts indigenous to the Holy Land. In Deuteronomy, we read, for Adonai, your God, is bringing you into a good land. And everyone prepares plates with nuts and crackers, olives and pomegranate seeds, and glasses with wine or grape juice. A land of olive trees and honey, a land wherein you shall eat without scarceness. You shall not lack anything in it. But this was the last time the Motherlode Jewish community met in person, member Jolyn Miller. We had no clue what was going to happen just a month later, huh? They're still meeting on Zoom. They have a lot of older members, people who are immunocompromised. Some members rush to get vaccines and boosters, and a number have chosen not to be vaccinated. It's really common for this area. About 50% of Tuolumne County residents are fully vaccinated, compared with over 70% of Californians. How do we move forward trying to be respectful of everybody, knowing that the way that this has all turned out is so polarizing. They'll be holding their Tubishvat celebration online this weekend. You can listen to more of that story on this week's California Report magazine. It's on public radio stations or download the podcast. 
And that's the California Report for Friday, January 14th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer, with assistance from Seal Muller and Jim Bennett. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovid Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a good day and weekend. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And the Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.